And I'm grateful that they have stepped up to join this game-changing journey. But I must say, it is not enough. And I know that they can do much more. That is the president of COP28, Sultan El-Jaber, speaking at the opening session of the Dubai event. He was referring to discussions between himself, others, and the world's fossil fuel companies. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Now let's hear just a portion of that address. And let history reflect the fact that this is the presidency that made a bold choice to proactively engage with oil and gas companies. We had many hard discussions. Let me tell you, that wasn't easy. But today, many of these companies are committing to zero methane emissions by 2030 for the first time. And now, many national oil companies have adopted net zero 2050 targets for the first time. And I'm grateful that they have stepped up to join this game-changing journey. But I must say, it is not enough. And I know that they can do much more. They can lead the way. And them leading the way will ensure that others follow and catch up. At the same time, as part of this presidency's action agenda, we are engaging with other high-emitting sectors, like heavy transportation, aluminum, steel, and cement. All in an effort to accelerate decarbonization at scale. I'm calling on all industries to engage, to innovate, to modernize and invest. And now we have 90 seconds from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Last year, Hurricane Ian devastated Sanibel and Captiva, two islands on Florida's Gulf Coast. Many residents are still working to rebuild their homes and recover emotionally from the storm. Maria Espinoza is the executive director of Fish of Sandcap, a community organization. Right after the storm, there was a sense that Sanibel and Captiva would rebuild, and it would rebuild quickly. I think we needed that hopefulness, seeing all the devastation around us. But it's clear that this is going to be a long-term process. After a weather disaster, survivors may need mental health support for months or even years. But Espinoza says there were no mental health providers on Sanibel or Captiva Islands. So her organization now partners with Salis Care, 
a mental health care provider, to offer weekly group therapy sessions and counseling appointments. Almost the very first time we had our group and someone came in, I remembered them from giving them a case of water right after the storm. I embraced them and they said, this is the first time I've gotten a hug since Hurricane Ian. All my neighbors have gone away. You have no idea how much I needed this. For many, this emotional support is a key step toward rebuilding their lives. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. Here at Climate Conversations, I'm ill-prepared and ill-equipped to report with any thoroughness about what's happening at COP28. All I can do is pick up bits and pieces from around the web, report on those, and help you better understand what's happening at COP28. What's not happening, of course, is any serious move to disenfranchise fossil fuels. Cops have been held for about 30 years, and it was only until recently that fossil fuels even got a mention. If nothing else happened to this COP other than to disenfranchise fossil fuels, that is, agree globally to phase them out, end the subsidies, and make them a part of history, then the COP would have been a huge success. Fossil fuels are the villain when it comes to the climate crisis. And if COP28 did nothing else but phase them out, it would be a huge success. I'm sounding like a broken record, but let's go again. If this COP does nothing else but phase out fossil fuels, it will be a huge success. One who questions the validity of COP28 is Melbourne's David Spratt. David Spratt is a research director of the Melbourne-based Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration and co-author of the book Climate Code Red. His latest piece, published on the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, has the headline, The Stark Choice Facing Climate Conference, A Livable Climate or More Oil and Gas. His story begins, Looking for ideas for a new streaming video series on climate politics? Try this. Over three decades, global emissions of a climate-warming greenhouse gases increased by half despite repeated promises by nations to cut them. Now it is crunch time, with petro-states determined to increase their oil and gas production, while poor and vulnerable nations say that, for their peoples, such a course will mean the end of life as they have known it. In 2023, the stage is set for a clash over the human future. The story by David Spratt continues. Small island states are aghast that dirty deals result in a petrostate winning the presidency for an annual global climate policy-making get-together, amid deepening fears for another year of political failure as the clock ticks down. And then, just days before the conference is to start, leaked documents show that the host state, the United Arab Emirates in the Persian Gulf, has used its position to push new oil trade deals with senior government officials and business leaders from around the world. There is uproar. Will the conference president, who is also the chief executive officer of the UAE's state-owned oil company, confront the media and declare it is all fake news? He does with a straight face, and the show goes on with crumbling credibility. You'll find a link for that story in the show notes. Next we have a story from The Conversation by Joshua M. Pierce, who is the J.M. Thompson Chair in Information Technology and Innovation at the Western University. His story has the headline, COP28, 
how seven policies could help save a billion lives by 2100. His story begins. In a recent review of more than 180 peer-reviewed articles, which I conducted with fellow researcher Richard Pancut, we found that a scientific consensus has formed around the so-called 1,000-ton rule. The 1,000-ton rule states that the person is killed every time humanity burns 1,000 tonnes of fossil carbon. Shockingly, we found that a 2 degrees Celsius temperature rise equates with a billion prematurely dead people over the next century, killed as a result of a wide range of global warming-related climate breakdowns. These findings were derived from a review of climate literature that attempted to quantify future human deaths from a long list of mechanisms. Next we have another story from The Conversation, and this one is by Matt MacDonald, who is the Associate Professor of International Relations at the University of Queensland. The headline for Matt's story is, COP28 Climate Summit just approved a loss and damage fund. What does this mean? His story begins. Day one of the COP28 Climate Summit saw the first big breakthrough, agreement on a loss and damage fund to compensate poor states for the effects of climate change. Met with a standing ovation in Dubai, the agreement means wealthy states and major polluters will put millions of dollars towards a fund that will in turn distribute funds to poor states harmed by climate change. The fund will be administered by the World Bank. Initial commitments amount to US $430 million. It will come as a huge relief to the United Arab Emirates, the summit's host. The country was under pressure even before talks began about its fossil fuel expansion plans and the fact that the president of the climate talks is chief executive of a national oil company. This undoubtedly featured in the UAE's decision to commit 100 million US to the fund. Continuing in the same vein, we have a story from CNN that has a headline, Nations pledge millions to new climate damage fund at COP28, US criticised for its small contribution. The story begins. Global delegates at the COP28 Climate Summit in Dubai formally adopted a damage fund that was decades in the making and several countries pledged millions of dollars to help nations hit hardest by the climate crisis. An early success on the first day of the talks that allows more time to discuss the thorny issues around slashing fossil fuels. But the United States is receiving criticism for contributing an embarrassing amount of money to the fund. Less than a fifth of the United Arab Emirates contribution and 14 times less than European unions. Join me now as we listen to another 90 seconds from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizerwitz, and this is Climate Connections. An after-school program in San Francisco gets teenagers excited about giving old clothes new life. And what we're hoping to kind of do is empower them to think about how, not just how they can make their own clothes, but how they can go to Goodwill and understand what a nice material is or something that's a good cut or a nice pattern. And maybe it's not in the shape or form that they want it to be now, but we're giving them the skills to mend it, repair it, dye it. Danielle Grant is with Scrap. The nonprofit runs a sustainable fashion design after-school program in the Bayview neighborhood of San Francisco. She says the fashion industry has a big environmental impact. Producing cotton uses a huge amount of water. Polyester is made from petroleum. 
and manufacturing, packaging, and transporting clothes around the world emits a lot of carbon pollution. Buying fewer new garments can help reduce the harm. What we're trying to really do is just contribute long-term to a culture of repair. So when young people want to spruce up their wardrobe, instead of heading to the mall, they can stop by the thrift store or open their own closet armed with needle and thread. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. Let's listen now to a story from the Melbourne Age that has the headline, Heading Towards a Very Unsafe World, Vanuatu's Climate Change Minister Fights to End Fossil Fuel Project. The story is by Laura Chung. Sitting under a tree in a quiet courtyard, Vanuatu Climate Change Minister Ralph Regenvanu sips on a long black as he prepares for a whirlwind trip to Dubai for the COP28 Climate Change Summit. He's hoping developed countries such as Australia commit to phasing out fossil fuels like coal and gas at the UN's annual meeting. The future of his country depends on it. With the world already warmed by 1.3 degrees since pre-industrial times, the biggest challenge is to minimise that damage, Regenvanu said. But he's not sure if that's even possible. We are rapidly heading towards a world that will not be very safe and livable for our children. And that's something I think most of us have accepted already. Can we make it a bit less unsafe, or a bit more livable, he says. Vanuatu, made up of roughly 80 islands and home to more than 319,000 people, has estimated about US$1.2 billion is needed by 2030 to ensure adequate adaption, mitigation and loss of damage. That means taking action to limit the impacts of climate change and make the community more resilient to its effects. Much of that money would come from international countries such as Australia or America. Region Vanu said the country has been smashed by natural disasters such as cyclones, which have soaked up almost half of the annual budget. But if the country is able to secure global funding before 2030, Vanuatu might be able to climate-proof its infrastructure, economy, and communities. Our country is continually in a response and recovery mode, he said. Developed countries, like Australia, have a duty to help developing nations, such as Vanuatu, which contribute very little greenhouse gas emissions, he said. In 2021, the country emitted 174,859 tonnes of CO2, compared to Australia's 391 million tonnes of CO2. Other countries by their activities have caused this damage to us. Who's going to pay for the damage? And who's going to pay to make us be able to withstand into the future these increasingly catastrophic events, he said. Region Vanu said Vanuatu, like many former colonies, had been underdeveloped during colonization. The country only achieved developing status three years ago, which is no small feat given only five other countries have managed to achieve an upgrade in the past 40 years. Historically, we have been exploited to create the climate crisis, and now we are victims of it. Accountability and justice is really critical in climate change talks, especially in terms of resourcing sustainable development for the world. Could Australia host COP31? Region Vanu, who has been in Parliament since 2008 and was previously Vanuatu's Minister for Foreign Affairs, is on his way to Dubai for COP28, where the first global assessment of progress since the landmark Paris Agreement in 2015 will be presented. At Paris, delegates set a goal of limiting global warming to well below 2 degrees, while aiming for a cap of 1.5 degrees. But this is expected to be exceeded in the near future. 
Australia has lagged other wealthy countries on climate action, with the former coalition government resisting pressure to set more ambitious carbon emission targets at last year's Glasgow Climate Summit. Since then, the Albanese government has set a target of reducing emissions to 43% below 2005 levels by 2030 which it is nearing. But environmental groups say the ongoing approval of fossil fuel projects undermines the government's efforts. It's also an issue Pacific nations want Australia to address, ahead of its bid to host COP31 in 2026. That's something Australia has to do, not only for the Pacific but for the world, he said. Australia is considered one of the front-runners to host COP31, having won support from several members of the Western Europe and others group that will decide where the meeting is held. Climate and Energy Minister Chris Bowen has repeatedly emphasised the Pacific's role in the meeting should Australia win the bid. While Region Vanu said Vanuatu is keen to work with Australia, the nations won't start talking until the bid has been finalised. He also said Australia will need to ensure Indigenous voices are at the forefront of the summit. But Region Vanu said despite COP summits, there had been a lack of real commitments from countries like Australia that was disheartening and slowed down any meaningful change. We need to see much more commitment to taking money away from the fossil fuel sector and putting it into adaptation, he said. We're not seeing enough courage from governments in the fossil fuel producing countries to do so. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. One, I'd love you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. And two, please share this with your friends. In fact, almost insist that you share this with your friends because it's important that we all know as much as we possibly can about the climate crisis, how we should respond, what we should be doing, who we should be talking to, what stories we should be telling. So... Please share this. Also, and this is number three, I'm really keen to know what you think about this podcast, so please tell me, and you can do that via email at number 7 at icloud.com. Now please, don't hold back. Let me know. Good or bad, please tell me. I want to know how this podcast's going. It's important I know that stuff. And yes, there's a fourth issue. My screen is still alive with climate issues, with climate stories, and you'll find links to as many as I can fit in the show notes. So please go there, check out the show notes, read the stories, learn about the climate crisis. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle.